0: Lowers your voice like four octaves, three registers down. So it's, it's really good. Couple of announcements for you. Uh, Sundays we're going to begin our study through the pastoral epistles. So we're beginning with 1st Timothy, just an exciting three books there. 1st and 2nd Timothy and then on to Titus. I want to encourage you because once you have studied the book of Acts, then a majority of the rest of the New Testament actually begins to take on a different flavor and meaning for you, because you realize how it is that all of these churches got founded, what happened there, so as you've been studying through the book of Acts, you now know why Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, you know why Timothy is going to be his understudy, and why Paul's going to write to Timothy and to Titus, you get a different understanding of the New Testament once you've studied the book of Acts, and so... I want to really encourage you, uh, be consistent in the study of the Word of God. And uh, I don't know how anybody survives just coming to church once a week, or once a month, or twice a month. I want to really encourage you, dig in deep. The times are such that we need all the Lord we can get, and a little less of the world. Amen? Before we get into the Word tonight, Acts chapter 21, we begin... Paul's journey now is he's going to head back to Jerusalem, as we saw a couple of chapters ago. Here, Acts chapter 21, he's ending his journey heading back to Jerusalem. He's made a vow before the Lord, and there are some interesting things in this chapter tonight that I think draw attention to the humanity of the Apostle Paul. We we must not ever place the Apostles on a pedestal. And I think it's very important to see that the apostles were making the same types of decisions and sometimes the same types of mistakes that you and I make. The Apostle Paul is going to get some counsel in this chapter to not go to Jerusalem. It's not going to be good for him. And in fact, we find out that it's not good for him, and he goes against that. There are several ways that you can take that. One is he made a mistake. The other is he had great determination. To be great at anything is to be often misunderstood. And in this passage tonight, I think that we can misunderstand the Apostle Paul. Uh, I I think back on some of the great thinkers of the world, you know, Socrates, Jesus himself, uh, Martin Luther, Copernicus, Galileo, some of our early founding fathers, Abraham Lincoln, uh, moving all the way forward to our, our day and time to Dr. Martin Luther King, some of those who who had a task that they were called to by the Lord, and they embarked on that task. Very often, those people are misunderstood, and the Apostle Paul was misunderstood. There, there are times when people didn't understand why he was doing what he was doing, but he was not moved. As we saw last time, none of these things, none of these things moved him. And that is really the battle cry of the church. Are we going to be moved or not? Are we going to stand or not? Are we going to do what God's called us to or not? Are we willing to be misunderstood for the sake of the gospel? Are we willing to be hated even if necessary, persecuted if necessary? Are we willing to do what it costs and what it takes to present the gospel to those who desperately need to hear it? The Apostle Paul was unmoved. He refused to be moved. And so we see that he will also be misunderstood because of that tonight. And So I pray that we'll draw deeply from this passage. It's a wonderful chapter full of several things where Paul is just uh, showing his human side, showing that tender side, showing that side that we would look at and go, yeah, it's not too apostle-like, but it's very apostle-like because it's very much like Jesus and so i pray we'll draw from it let's pray father god tonight we do want to lift up the aberg family to you and lord what a testimony this whole time has been to you lord such a very 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 difficult decision that no parent should have to make and yet lord we recognize that you're the author of life that lord you make no mistakes Father, all we can think of is that Holly Joy must be very, very special because you're going to bring her home early. And so, Father, we know that that hole that will be left in the Aberg family only you can fill. We ask that you would do that. Give them strength to endure and to persevere. We pray for those that will attend to the doctors, the nurses, the staff at the hospital. We pray that you would just anoint them with great tenderness and gentleness. Lord, that your will would be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. As we study your word tonight, Lord, we pray that you'd instruct us. Bless us as we hear it. Help us to take it in, not just to our minds, but to our hearts. Use it, Lord, for your plan and purpose in our lives, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul has just left in essence the the region of Ephesus. He's going to move along the coast. You're going to see him switch ships here mid-chapter tonight. He there there's two types of ships that basically plied the Mediterranean at that time. There were little coastal ships that moved pretty much from city to city, much like we would we would look at a a bus route. They would go from major city to major city. They'd pull into the coast do their business, go back out. They'd go off the coast, sail down the coast, following the trade winds. They'd move into the next port of call, and they would simply go and do their trade that way. And then there are those ships that Paul will take about the middle of this chapter. He'll actually get on a much uh, longer voyaging vessel. They'll move uh, there from what is now modern-day Turkey, and he'll sail all the way down to Lebanon, a distance of about 430 miles, so a pretty good distance. About half the length of, if you, be like if you left San Francisco when you came down to San Diego. A pretty good distance in a ship. And so he's going to make that journey as well. Uh, in, in the midst of doing this, he's going to pull into a port that he's never been into, and that's, that's the port of Tyre. And of course, Tyre, uh, in our study in the book of Ezekiel, uh, Satan, in, interestingly enough, is portrayed as the, as the king of Tyre. And we have this picture of this port city that was then, uh, the area of the world known as Phoenicia. It's modern-day Lebanon, a very rich, uh, culturally diverse place. And, and here Paul begins to, to minister just briefly in this very wealthy city. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 1 here in Acts chapter 21, And now it came to pass, when we had departed from them, that's meaning Ephesus, from the body there, and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos. And so he's come from Ephesus, out just about 10 miles off the, co- the island, to the island of Kos. And there following a day to Rhodes, another island just uh, slightly south of there. And from there to Patara, finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed off the left and sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And for there, there was a ship to unload her cargo. And finding the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice this. It seems very clear, because it's recorded by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit had told these disciples to tell Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to focus in on that a little bit for tonight. Because it seems pretty clear that Paul gets this message more than once. It seems pretty clear that perhaps maybe it wasn't God's perfect will that he go back to Jerusalem. Maybe Paul was being rebellious. Maybe Paul was a little bit fixated on his own Jewish people and what would happen to them. We don't really know. But we know this, that it's recorded that they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Don't go. Now, it doesn't appear from the structure of the sentence in the Greek language that they were forbidding him to go, but they were more or less saying, if you go, it's not going to be good. So the other thing that we can draw from this is the Apostle Paul did the tough thing. The Apostle Paul took the hard road. The Apostle Paul looked at this almost as a challenge It may be dangerous, but this is what God's called me to do. All of those things have some merit. Each of them becomes a little clearer as we study the rest of the chapter. And there he stayed for seven days, and so as they tell him not to go, and when we had come, and notice again the pronoun we, so Luke is writing he himself is in this group, we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way, And they all accompanied accompanied us with their wives, their children, until we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed, and when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And so Tyre and Sidon, twin cities, right on the coast, um, as they meet there, they go in and spend some time in that region. And then all of a sudden, they're getting ready to leave, and as was customary, Paul made friends relatively quickly. And here he begins to minister to these people. I may be needing that bottle of water more than once, so I'll just leave it open. So this is this is the first time that we find recorded in Scripture that Paul ministers to the believers. Their entire. Um, it, it is highly likely that his persecution of the Jerusalem believers originally had helped get this church started. It's not very far away. If you if you look on a map and you look at the Middle East and you look at where Tyre is up in modern day Lebanon, you look where Jerusalem is. It's only about 120 miles distance, so it's not terribly far away from Jerusalem, probably less than a week's travel by foot, maybe four or five days uh, if you were taking an animal. And so Um, There were all kinds of new believers there, people that had come from Jerusalem. The word had spread very quickly. And so that area of the world was highly populated with believers of just about every flavor that you can possibly imagine. And Paul had devoted a good part of this, the third missionary journey, uh, to taking up this love offering, if you will, to go back to Jerusalem. Because if you remember, the persecution of the church in Jerusalem was huge. Paul was a part of it. And so the Jerusalem Church, even though the church started there, was perhaps one of the weakest churches in the region, because they they were persecuted in such a great way that they really had to spread out, they had become very, very underground, and so Paul is going back to minister to them, and uh, it was kind of neat how the gospel went out, and of course scripture records for us that it was to the Jew first, and then to the Gentiles, and so the Gentiles now are beginning to minister back to their Jewish roots, if you will. And so Paul is going back to spend some time with them. And so the church there was in a constant threat from the Jewish people, a constant threat from the Romans, a constant threat, in essence, from about every way that you can possibly imagine. And so as the Jewish extremist uh, kept on fighting the fight, uh, Paul basically said, you know what, I'm going to go back and kind of finish up where I started. I believe that's what uh, Scripture is declaring here. And he goes on now, and he's going to move to uh, Caesarea, which is just down the coast, about half of the distance. Uh, he's going to move from Tyre to Caesarea, which is about halfway between there and Jerusalem. And so verse 7 we find. And when he had, we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came fr- to Ptolemus, and greeted the brethren there and stayed with them one day. And on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist. And so they're they're there in Caesarea, a very, very vibrant church in that particular city. If you remember, Jesus himself ministered there several times. Uh, it was a very, very safe place for people to be. And so it seems like the group kind of split off, and Paul's going to take off more or less by himself now and finish the journey. And so they entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And so it appears that this is a, a very, very, very spiritual family. Um, they're going to spend some time with them. And as they stayed there for many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So he came from the foothills of the mountains of Judea, the the southern part of modern-day Lebanon. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt. Now, this was one of those customs that we don't really get a whole lot out of during our day and time. But in essence, the belt was what held everything else together. Um, when you look, when you look at, at how people dressed during that day and time, for the most part, only the wealthy actually had a belt. Most of the time it was just a sash or a rope. might have even been some sisal twine, something like that. We wouldn't really call it a belt. But Paul apparently had an actual belt, which kind of goes with the fact that he had been a Pharisee, a relatively well-to-do man. And so he took Paul's belt and bound his hands and feet. So he's doing this weird thing. He grabs this thing that normally holds all of Paul's attire, the tunic and the cloak together, so that it kind of forms uh, a garment that has some shape to it. Otherwise, it's basically a sack. And so he binds his hands and feet, and he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit. So he's already been told, uh, when he was just a little further north, uh, when he left Tyre, don't go to Jerusalem. So he's going to get the same message. He's moving down the coast. He's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And, of course, as he's speaking that, he's saying, you're going to be delivered into the hands of the Romans because they were the leaders of the Gentiles. And so he, now he gets the message, it's even more extreme, it's more pointed, it's more dangerous, and this man who has this, in essence, family of prophets, if you will, including the daughters, says, don't go to Jerusalem. It's not gonna be good for you. You're gonna be bound up. And this is part of the reason that I think the most logical conclusion to come, to come from this is, I think Paul from this becomes all the more tenacious that he has to go. You could look at it, well, he's just being ignorant. He's just being arrogant. He, you know, he's not hearing the word of the Lord. There's all kinds of things that you can come to conclusion and, and draw from this. But it appears to me that he's just becoming more set that God's sending him there and that these guys, though they're seeing that the Spirit of God is speaking to them, what he's really being what what's really going on in Paul's life is he's being warned about what's going to happen. I can tell you very often that when you're involved deeply in the work of the Lord, you are going to be warned of things. The Holy Spirit is going to speak through people, it's going to speak through the Word of God, going to speak through circumstances, and and the message very often will be not so much don't like you and I understand don't. But if you go, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And to us as human beings, we look at that as don't go. It's scary. It's frightening. There may be something that's going to happen that you don't like. And so he says, verse 12, And now when he heard these things, both we and those that that were in that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So now his friends get in on it. The rest of the gospel team gets in on it. says, okay, you've already been told when you were in Tyre, don't go to Jerusalem. Now you've been prophesied over, don't go to Jerusalem. We're telling you, don't go to Jerusalem. It's not good. It's going to be bad. You're, you're going to be bound. You're going to be put in prison. And then Paul answered. I love this answer. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? Now remember who the Apostle Paul is. The Apostle Paul is a Jew. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul loves the Jewish people. The Apostle Paul founded, in essence, to some degree, that work which began in Jerusalem. And as he left the Jerusalem Council, he's now been gone for years sharing the gospel all over Asia, all over Asia Minor. He is now coming back to that place, in essence, where it all started for him. It was on that trip from Jerusalem where he had set out, that we saw in Acts 9, to go persecute the church. And he's on the road to Damascus. He's heard that there are Christians up there. He's going to make sure they're getting taken care of in a bad way. And Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. And so he kind of left Jerusalem, if you will, without all the effort that he put everywhere else. It's rather like this. We can equate it this way. As parents, we want to know that our children know and love the Lord and serve the Lord. But very often, you know what? We spend more time ministering to other people's kids. We spend more time ministering to other families. We, we sometimes forget our own Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And I think to some degree Paul's looking back on his life and he says, man, I've ministered in Corinth and I've ministered in Athens and I've ministered in Ephesus and I've ministered in all these little cities of Philippi and, and I've spent all this time with other people, but I haven't really ministered to my own people, the Jews. So what do you mean by breaking my heart? Weeping. Now notice what he says, and so we understand pretty clearly, at least from the Apostle Paul's situation, what he thought of the counsel to not go, even though the counsel was true. The counsel is from the Spirit of God. If you go, you're going to be bound. If you go, it's not going to be good for you. If you go, you're probably going to go to jail. Matter of fact, Paul says, For I am ready not only to be bound. Now this is determination. I'm ready not only to be bound, but to also die at Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. He said, okay, I realize there's tremendous risk. I realize that things may not go well. I realize it could be very, very, very painful. I realize from a circumstantial standpoint, it's going to be dangerous for me. Now do you understand why Paul said, I count not my own life dear.'" But I suffer gladly the loss of all things, that I might win some. You see, that was his life. It was only what he wrote that I do that counts for Christ that amounts to anything. You you see, he had now become so just absolutely convinced that the only reason he was on earth Was to reach people with the gospel message. He didn't care if it cost him his life. And so when he would not be persuaded, I love this. The implication is there, what we have recorded here in Scripture was not the last time they told him, don't go. Matter of fact, the implication is in the Greek language of the New Testament that they were constantly telling him, are you nuts? Are you crazy? Why are you going to Jerusalem? You're going to be bound. You're going to be thrown in prison. Highly likely there were some details that we don't have recorded here, but the tense of this is in the Greek language that they were constantly telling him, don't go. Don't do it. Now, there's an interesting thing that comes in here, and I think it's one of those things that we need to look at. Very often people will try and convince you to not do things for the Lord because of their own view of it. For instance, very often parents will say, no, I don't think you should go into the mission field because we don't want to lose our own kids. Sometimes there, I can, I can tell you, it's not easy being in ministry. There are easier ways to make a living than ministry. That is for sure. And there are people, well, you know, the ministry is hard. You have to be convinced in the Lord that God's called you to do what you're doing. And if you're convinced in the Lord, then nothing can keep you from it. That's where Paul was. Nothing could keep him from it. He was convinced God had called him to do it. And no matter what men said, he was going to do what God told him to do. And so here these men tell him, don't do this. And yet they, also hearing from the Lord, say, the will of the Lord be done. This is a wonderful picture because... They had done what the Spirit had told them to do. They told the Apostle Paul, don't go. They warned him of the danger. And Paul, becoming strengthened in the Spirit, says, that's okay. It's dangerous. I'll go even if I get killed. So both of them could walk away from this situation going, you know what? I did what God asked me to do. There are times when we are stirred of the Lord to give people counsel and it is really just to prepare their hearts. It's not so much to dissuade them from the direction they're already going. There are times when we give them counsel when it actually is to change direction. We need to leave those results in God's hands, exactly how these guys did this, the, the people who were there with Philip. He's one of the original deacons. He served as the evangelist. We saw him back in Acts 8. Uh, it Probably by this time had now been about 20 years. Since Paul had last been in in Caesarea, and so this is kind of a homecoming. Uh, it was basically Philip's headquarters, if you will, and uh, the prophet Agabus came to give that. Warning message from the Lord. And it was 15 years earlier, back in Acts chapter 11, that Paul and Agabus had worked together uh, for that famine relief in Judea. So you can kind of see how Paul's coming full circle. All these people that he had ministered to originally, as he went out on his first missionary journey, and he crossed over the Aegean Sea, and he goes to Greece, and he ministers in Athens, and Corinth, and Thessalonica, and all these cities, and he's traveling around. He's now coming back to those cities as he's heading back, in essence, home, uh, which will ultimately be his undoing, by the way. And so Paul basically silences him. He says, you know what, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to do whatever. The question begs to be asked, was Paul right or was Paul wrong? I think Paul was right. I think Paul made the right decision. I think we, from a human perspective, would look at this and go, "I don't, you know, what if the Apostle Paul?" Because here's the human, here's the human end of it. What if, what if, for just a minute, the Apostle Paul had had another twenty years on Earth? You see, from a human standpoint, instead of him being arrested and then imprisoned in Rome and ultimately dying, what if he'd had twenty more years to go out and plant more churches? You see, from our human perspective, we look at it, well, you know, God could just use him in such a much greater way. But we know that God doesn't make any mistakes. And so, does God cause us to make decisions that sometimes, from a human perspective, seem tragic? The answer is yes. There are things that happen every day in my life that I look back on and I go, you know what, I wouldn't have chosen to do that that way. I wouldn't have picked that disease. I wouldn't have allowed that car accident. I would have stopped all those things from happening, and I would have saved that person that grief. I never would have allowed that thing with that child, And, and we would go through and we'd clean it all up to where everything just worked out and everybody got along and nobody got hurt. And yet that isn't how God works in this world. In God's immense plans for this planet and for all the people that are on it, he allows bad things to happen to good people. And he allows good things to happen to bad people and everything in between. He literally ordains at times things that we would look at and go, how's God going to use that? Like babies being born with birth defects. Could God have stopped that? Well, if we truly believe he's sovereign, then the answer has to be yes. Could God have done something different? The answer has to be yes. Or God's not God. You you cannot come to any other conclusion. And so we see here God using difficult and hard things to do something else in someone else's life. Can you imagine how much resolve Philip now has? When he sees the great apostle Paul, who's been warned, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul is so convinced that he needs to go, that he goes anyway. When he knows that Paul knows that he's going to be arrested, and he goes anyway. Anyway. Can you see how people's lives who are challenged in ways that you might not be able to withstand, but they can encourage someone else to be strengthened? And sometimes we look at the persecuted church. That's one of the great lessons of the persecuted church all over the world. Bluntly, most of the people in America couldn't and wouldn't go through what the persecuted church does in Arab nations or in Indonesia. We would cave in quicker than the takeoff of the space shuttle. For the most char- most part, the church in America is weak in that regard. But how many churches are strengthened? How many churches are built up? How many churches have, have been turned around because of the testimony of a Jim Elliot who gives his life in the jungles of Ecuador? You see, that's the, the message here of the Apostle Paul. You see, he was going. Paul was going to go back to Jerusalem and he was going to de- deal with a huge problem because the Jews, though they had the law, they didn't have grace. They hadn't read the book of Romans. They hadn't read the book of Galatians. They hadn't read the book of Philippians. They had the law, and they had a clean understanding of what God intended to do through the law, but they didn't have a clue about grace. And Paul felt like he could go back and share the word of grace with the Jewish people, even if it cost him his life. And so he did the hard thing. He was willing to go back and fight the good fight, so to speak. He was going to go back and try and break up that animosity that that had developed between... uh, christian believers and the jewish believers and between what ultimately would be that the jewish uh, mindset of jerusalem and so we find him next in jerusalem verse 15 and after those days we packed and went to jerusalem and so he's going to move the remaining 65 miles or so Uh, he's going to take off from caesarea and uh, move southward and eastwards down to jerusalem and also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain uh, Manson of, of Cyprus, who was an early disciple with whom, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come into Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And so the Jerusalem church, they take this uh, probably anywhere between four, two- and four-day journey, something like that, down to Jerusalem, and so they're here. And they're bringing this, this collection that's been made for the church in Jerusalem. They're going to try and help that church. And interestingly enough, because of the Jewish mindset, uh, there was highly likely a bit of skepticism about why would this turncoat Pharisee former Jew come back to, to build up this church in Jerusalem? They were probably concerned about that gift and why he brought it, what he was trying to do. So every step of the way would have been met with some type of, in essence, disdain by some of the people that were near Paul. And so very misunderstood, because you have to remember that even though he's going to minister to a Jewish church, the Jewish church would have still been Jewish. And so consequently, still very, very in tune with legalism, still very in tune with the law itself. And of course, as we know, Paul will go on and write the wonderful letter, letter to the Roman church. Uh, he's going to write the book of Hebrews as well, and a little more on that in a few minutes. But he, he's going to tell them that the great difference between grace and the law. But at this point, they didn't know what that was. And so they were still struggling with that. And so Paul... As uh, daring to be misunderstood in Jerusalem. And certainly the church there uh, misunderstood his message. In verse 18, he goes on now and says, And on the following day, Paul went with us to James and to all the elders who were present. And so there they're meeting with, in essence, the church leadership of the Jerusalem church. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done through the Gentiles through his ministry. And so he begins to recount Basically what we have just studied in the book of Acts. He says, this is what I've been doing all these years. I've been in Corinth. I've been in Athens. I've been in Thessalonica. I went to Philippi. I've been in Caesarea. I've ministered in all these places and planted churches. And I want you to notice who Paul gives the glory to. He gives it to God. He said the things that God has done through his life. No man deserves the glory for the things that God does. Doesn't matter how big the church is or how many things the church is doing, God does the work through the church. It's not, it's not the people that do it, it's God that does it. We're just simply the vessels. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed And they're all zealous for the law. And so there was an infiltration, if you will, of the law back towards the believers who were now totally reliant upon the grace of God. this is a constant problem that still exists today. One of the reasons that, and probably the chief reason, that Paul wrote the letter to the church at Galatia was to deal with this particular problem which was it's really easy to begin to look at external holiness. And one could say, well, if, you, if you're saved by grace, then wouldn't the grace of God plus the law of God be better than just the grace of God alone? And that was kind of the Jewish mindset. It's like, hey, we're Jews. We're children of the promise. We're the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, after all, Herod's temple up there on the Temple Mount, that's our temple. God gave that to us. And so if we're also saved and we're circumcised and we keep all the feasts, we must be better Christians than everybody else who doesn't have all those things. Because after all, you can add all that to the grace of God. And Paul's going to confront that, saying, no, you can't add anything to the grace of God. It is the grace of God alone that saves. And you're no more holy because of those things. Then without those things, because our holiness comes from our relationship with Christ Jesus, it doesn't come from what we do. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. And so he will remind them that they're not better off because they're Jews and Christians. Now this would be an affront to the Jews, because they truly believe that they are the chosen people of God. And, of course, that is true in the sense of the promise to Abraham, in the sense of the promises to David. But it didn't make them better Christians. They're zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you that you teach that all Jews, (coughs) excuse me, who are among the Gentiles, forsake Moses. (coughs) Now, here's the problem. if you take Jesus and you make him either lesser or greater by adding or subtracting anything, then you have made him less than Savior. And so what they were doing was the law of Moses was supreme. That was the thing that, in essence, was the difference between the Israelites and the Canaanites whose land God gave to them. We have the law. We have the word of Moses. We have the Pentateuch. We have the first, what we call the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We have those books. God wrote those to us, and they're only for us. And so now we have grace. So they were saying these Gentiles are forsaking Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. The Jewish people are saying, well, we got saved and we're going to keep that stuff too, so we're like three steps above you. God must really love us. If he loves you by grace, then of course we're really special. This still infiltrates the church today. There are people that think that they're better because of what they do for God. There are people who have the wrong impression about pastors. Well, you know, you have a special place. I, I constantly hear, well, when you get to heaven, you know, and you're there, and I'll be coming in like a year after. No, you won't. You may beat me there. I don't know. The only thing that's going to happen with my life as a pastor is I am going to suffer the stricter judgment. That's what Scripture says. God's going to hold me more accountable for the things of God because I knew more of them than the average other person on this planet. So he's actually going to judge me more harshly than he will judge you. It's going to be a little tougher for me from that standpoint. The wood, hay, and stubble in my life is going to is really going to burn because I knew better. So he says... Well, they're telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. What then, he says in verse 22, the assembly must certainly meet, for they'll hear that you've come. So he says, great, the Apostle Paul's going to come. The Apostle Paul's going to walk in the assembly meeting and tell them, you guys all need to be Jews too. That's what they thought. The Apostle Paul will come and straighten it all right up. He's going to make sure that they keep the law and they keep the customs, they're circumcised, that they hold to the law, and they're saved by grace. And so they'll be super Christians. And therefore do what we tell you. For we have four men who have now taken a vow. Take them to be purified with them and pay their expenses that they may shave their heads, that they may all know that of these things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing. So he's saying, you know, if you just take these guys over and you finish up your Nazarite vow and you take them over to the temple and you make sure all these things, then nobody's gonna believe all the bad things they've been telling about you, Paul. Because they've been telling everybody you don't you know, and you kinda of went over the deep end that you no longer keep the law and you know you might be one of them. But that's not true, is it, Paul? The fact of the matter is, is, yeah, it was true. He says, these guys are taking the Nazarite vow. You go over there and notice what it says. I love this. They may know the things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself walk orderly and keep the law. But the great Apostle Paul has come back from his three missionary journeys, and he planted all those churches, and he's coming back to Jerusalem, and he's saying it's... Jesus and the law. It's Jesus and the feasts. It's Jesus and, it's Jesus and, it's Jesus and. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except they should keep themselves from food offered to idols, from blood, things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And so Paul says, mm, I'm not really keeping the law, actually, anymore. And so their eyes open up big, and their phylacteries start to rattle on their forehead, and they start getting really antsy. And then Paul took them in the next day, having been purified with them, and entered the temple to announce, the expiration of the days of the purification at which time the offering should be made for each one of them. And so they report in detail and, you know, he's he's talking to them. And and just bear in mind, they hadn't read Galatians, they hadn't read Romans. The old customs were difficult to change and, and Paul's really trying to minister to them. It's interesting because the book of Hebrews was basically written to Hebrews to tell them to stop being Hebrews. It's like, no, Jesus is greater than Moses and the law doesn't save you. All those things that are contained in the book of Hebrews, here the Hebrews are saying, well, we need to still be Hebrews. And Paul's basically telling them, no, you need the grace of God. That's what's going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so Paul uh, didn't encourage the Gentiles, uh, but he also didn't tell them not to get involved in the old Jewish religion. So What he was really doing was leaving the door open. And I want to remind you of this. This is kind of an important point here. Because as the Apostle Paul goes back to Jerusalem, there's a lot that is being said by what he doesn't say. We don't find that the Apostle Paul said, you know, well, you guys are just totally in sin. Notice how he goes and he finishes up the purification ritual and he comes back. But basically he downplays the whole thing. There's a wonderful passage, if you want to mark it down, you can look at it later. It's actually um, in 1 Corinthians, uh, it's chapter 9. And there in chapter 9, there's a, there's a whole series of things that, that Paul uh, says as he's writing to the church at Corinth. He says, "Doing free from all men. It, it begins there in, in verse 19. I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became a Jew. And to those under the law, I became as those under the law. And to the Greeks, Greeks. And so he he wasn't saying I became a Jew again. He wasn't saying I I gave my life over to the Greek gods. He was saying in order that I might be able to reach these guys, I couldn't just make enemies of them. And the whole point that he would go on to say is that I might win some. That there would be an open door for me to share the gospel. And so Paul knew going into Jerusalem he was going to be in trouble. The whole plan appeared to be safe, it appeared to be wise, but basically all these things that that you know that Paul was warned about were about to come true. And so verse 27 and now when the seven days were almost ended. and remember we saw that Paul had come back to finish his vow. he's now done that. And the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out. You, you see, they understood that Paul had been hanging out with Gentiles. They understood that highly likely Paul was at least ritually unclean, if not completely unclean. And so he, they cry out, men of Israel, help for this Man who teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And furthermore, he's also brought in Greeks into the temple and has defied the, defiled the holy place. They're saying the Apostle Paul's abandoned the law. The Apostle Paul doesn't keep the feasts anymore. The Apostle Paul has, has just gotten rid of everything Jewish about him. And he's just been inside the temple. He, he's gone through the gate beautiful. It says in verse 29, For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. It wasn't even true. The guys that Paul brought into the temple were actually all Jews. He didn't bring any Gentiles into the temple. He wasn't even guilty of what he was being accused of. But because of the friends he kept and because of the things that he had said, there was an assumption that he had done these things. In verse 30 and then all the city was disturbed and the people ran together and seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut now remember in all of our studies in the book of acts has Paul actually ever done anything to make himself necessarily unclean? And the answer is no. He's been keeping the law. He's been keeping the feast. He hasn't been doing it for salvation. He's been doing it for a witness. He was completely entitled to go into the temple. There was no problem there whatsoever. But there was a perception that he might be stirring people away from Judaism. Though he himself really had not been disqualified from being in the temple. The doors were shut And now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. And if you were to look at a picture of the Temple Mount, the the outside wall that is still there, which is the western wall, which is the wailing wall that is still part of the old Temple Mount, it's not the temple itself, but it's the walls that held up the temple plateau itself. That's the only thing left from Herod's second temple, when the temple that was built by Herod the Great. Okay, That's all that's left today. But at that time, those were the outside walls, and beyond that, in essence, adjacent to that, would have been the court of the Gentiles. And so now what's happening is the whole city's in an uproar. It was a Jewish city. Um, the Jewish people had been given the ability, and if you remember in the trial of Jesus... The reason that the Jews were able to affect the death of Jesus is because he was guilty of a religious crime. And so blasphemy against God. And so now they're accusing Paul of the same thing because to keep the peace, the Romans had left the Jews in power over the Temple Mount itself. And so anything that happened there, the Jews could actually issue the death penalty. So they had the legal right to kill Paul. And so what what we now find is... Immediately, uh, Jerusalem was in an uproar, and they took the soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So Paul's being beat. He's being thumped. He is getting a good working over because of the perception that he might possibly have defiled the court of the temple. And then the commander came near to him and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. Remember the prophecy. He says, As this belt binds your hands and your feet, so as you go to Jerusalem, you shall be bound. So Paul understood that this was the fulfillment of that prophecy. That Paul had kept what Paul said he was going to do, and now God was being true to what God told him through the Spirit was going to happen. Bound him with two chains, and he asked what it was that he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. They're all screaming and yelling, well, he did this and he did that. You know, he went inside the court and he went through the gate, beautiful, and he was actually there in the court of the altar of incense. I can't believe it. And so when they could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, commanded him to be taken to the barracks. And so the Antonia Fortress, where Jesus was actually brought from that to Uh, meet with Pilate, Um, that's the same place this garrison was stationed. And so they're now coming out, they've arrested Paul. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. So he's literally been picked up. He's being carried along because the mob is still trying to kill him. And he's being actually protected by Roman soldiers through his arrest. Protective custody, if you will. And for the multitude of people followed after him, crying out, Away with him! So they're thinking, great, the Romans have him, they'll kill him. And when Paul was about to be led to the barracks, he said, Commander, may I speak to you? And he replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? So he says, aren't you Maccabees? Aren't you one of those guys? Aren't you, you know, you're kind of a troublemaker, aren't you? And Paul said, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you to permit me to speak to the people. And so when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people so the whole crowd has followed him over to the roman garrison stationed in the antonian fortress and here they are on the steps leading up to that fortress the roman garrison has whisked him away and paul turns around he says let me talk to the jews and he stood there on the stairs and motioned with his hands and when he was there a great silence He broke that silence and spoke to them in Hebrew language, saying, and he begins to talk to them. Now, if you were to look at the temple at that time, the temple complex itself, for a gentile to go past the outer courts into in essence out of the court of the gentiles and, and into solomon's porch or inside of the royal porticos, or worse yet through the gate beautiful which he would have had to have done to go in and complete the ritual of purification he, he w- couldn't even have gone to the court of women And there was a sign at that time on Herod's temple and it said in both Latin and Greek for no foreigner may enter into here around this barricade which surrounds the sanctuary of the Lord for it is holy and anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his own death. And so when you entered in through the gate beautiful that's what you saw. And so Paul's now going to minister to those people because they believe that he's not only not Jewish, but they believe that he's defiled the actual temple of the Lord. And so Paul being bound, next time we meet up with him as we take on the next chapter, he's going to preach to this crowd that's gathered at the steps. He's going to tell them why he's there. He's going to give them some insight. And so that boldness with which Paul uh, began his missionary journeys, uh, we see him now in trouble. He's going to be arrested and whisked off to Rome. Um, ultimately, he will lose his life there, but there's a lot more here in the next few chapters as we wrap this book up. So would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the tenacity of the Apostle Paul. Lord, we thank you that not even an essence of prophecy from you that many of us would have heard and gone the other way, Lord, not even that prophecy could keep him from fulfilling what you've called him to. And, Lord, it reminds us of you, Jesus. As recorded by the prophet Isaiah, for your face was set like flint on Jerusalem. Lord, as you came up out of that valley and walked up the road into the city of Jerusalem on that fateful day that you were arrested, Lord, you kept going knowing what lied ahead. And so did the Apostle Paul. We thank you for that. We pray that you'd give us that type of boldness with those that we minister to each day. Bless us, Lord. Help us, we pray, to fulfill all that you have for us this week. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I was going to cough one more time. I made it actually feel much better. I felt worse last week, so. God bless you guys. Thanks for putting up with my froggy voice tonight.